35 years of working in foods, health and nutrition and food security, you know, I've got a family now. I didn't want to go to wars and 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 famines with with young children, um, but I don't want to give up on that sector. So I wanted to find something that local farmers could grow that could both be economically viable for them, you know, make them a profit, make them a living and help the ecology of the area. Hello, I'm Cahal Summers. And I'm Deirdre Glenn. Your Chagas Sustainability Advisors, and you're welcome to the Chagas Environment Edge podcast, bringing you the latest information, science, and opinion to improve farm sustainability. From famine torn countries to the idyllic countryside of West Cork, Dr. Steve Collins of Durry Duff Farm joins us to chat about his journey in nutrition and farming superberries in the hills of West Cork. Listen in to hear about the huge benefits Arona berries have for human health. Steve, can you tell us a little bit about your background? You're a very interesting man and your humanitarian work. So I I got, I started in humanitarian work during the 1985 famine, um, the whole band aid thing. So I I was actually a medical student and I had taken a a couple of years off, much to the college's dismay. um, And I was working in Africa and I I got caught up in a war in Uganda and travelled around through Africa and ended up in Sudan. And there was a famine on and... I sort of, you can't be a tourist in a famine. And I was trying to head home, but I realized that, you know, either I left or I worked. And so I, I got a job and really riding a horse around the uh, the Sahel for nine months, actually staying in villages that have been affected by famine. And so seeing it first rank, you know, first line in person of what happened and what people did with aid food. And so that shaped the next 35 years of, of my working life that I um I focused on famine relief, but from a f- community-based level. So very much looking at how communities deal with food insecurity and how they make choices. And of course, that then led to an agricultural perspective as well. It's very interesting. And from that then, um, do you have any concerns then with food security in the develop- in developed countries? Climate change is stressing food security everywhere. And I don't say in Ireland, I am... Um, you know, I've got a sort of quite a micro level view because I just look at the, my own local environment. But I see the same problems that we would see in Africa. You know, when, when we're in, say, Malawi, you, you, you find their monocrop maize and monocropping in the face of climate change decreases resilience because rain comes at different times. And so if you're monocropping, say, Malawi, and you don't get rain, I think it's in December, you can lose your whole maize harvest and then be incredibly vulnerable, you know, and and not have food. Here, I look out, you know, I I live up a hill. I look out and I see people monocropping grass. And that's what people do in the west of Ireland in the hills. They just have grass. They have sheep and cattle. And I even in the short time, I've only been farming 15 years, but even in that time, we've had a couple of really bad years where the grass has failed, you know, the silage hasn't been cut. And you've got lads in the valley that, you know, one year, I think it was 2012, was it? They were buying hay in from Spain for 60 euro round bale, you know, and that can, if you've got debts, that can put you out of business so quickly so so yes i have and i i think a key way to help mitigate that is to diversify agriculture and so that's what i've been trying to do yeah i suppose steve in your previous work and, and you're away for many years in, in countries where you're dealing with starvation um crops failing and 
it must have been some huge impact to come back to Ireland and, and see the difference between what we do and, and where you're working uh, from one extreme to the other. Um, and the one question I would have, and I was talking to Deirdre about this earlier, that, okay, potentially with global warming, climate change, that potentially some of the countries that you are working in will become less inhabitable, le- less ability to feed themselves. And those people have to come somewhere. And it feeds back into Deirdre's question about um, sustainability in even the Western world or uh, in developed countries that, that, to help those people. Um, and you talked about the monocrops. Uh, how, how do you see this going or did you get much of a fright in the, the type of way we live and the food wastage even maybe? It, it was I, it was very, very difficult. So my my speciality was as a, as a medical doctor and a, with a doctorate in nutrition, I was treating starving people on the point of death. So I, I would be called in where there was mass starvation. So, you know, Samaria in 92, Angola in 93, oh, South Sudan in 90, you know, all the major wars and famines. And I found it very difficult dealing with say a family who just lost all their children to starvation and then coming back to to uh ireland and you know having people complaining that their new car had got a scratch or you know sort of throwing away um you know perfectly edible food i I found that very difficult so it's why i i live in a very remote place where I, i i just put my head in the sand for that um it's the world is changing and and my experience in africa shows that climate change is real and people are suffering because of it um that will impact here i don't know how i don't really deal at that political level um but it yeah there, there needs to be changes made we need to to focus on growing more nutritious food and wasting less food um i'm you know i i, I know on the growing side, on the on the wasted side, I, I that's it's it's going to take people changing their habits, and that's that's always very difficult. How did you find your way back to Ireland? I, I know you're 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 not originally from Ireland. What what happened? I, Claire's your wife and the kids. How how did you how did you end up here? Yeah, well, Claire Claire Claire's mum's Irish, and she was brought up half in Ireland, half in the UK, and so she was living in Dublin, and I we got together, and I couldn't live in a town. And as I say, I needed to find somewhere very quiet. And I just, my, my forebears were for, you know, McCollins from County Cork. So we just nipped out for a generation, really. Famous name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not quite the accent for it, but never mind. <laughs> um, but I, I I found this this farm, uh, really remote farm. And I just saw it. I just thought, wow, that's paradise. And I still do. You know, I've been here for nearly 20 years. And it's just, it's a fantastic place to live. And, and the, the local... The local lads around here, you know, that it's a great way of life. They're great people, so I'm I'm very very happy here. Are you from farm background? You're, you're no, so never. Far. No, I lived I lived in the country when I was uh, young, and I always liked animals. Um, but no, I I never I never actually farmed. So when I got my first, I got a herd of Dexter cattle initially because I wanted to get something that was adapted to this environment, and so it was a huge learning curve. But luckily, the medicine's pretty similar, really. Yeah, and the farm that you bought, uh, like we spoke there before we came on air, and you you showed us a picture. You're on top of a hill. What's the land like? Is it is it harsh land? Is it easy to farm? Is it difficult terrain? No, it's uh, it's it's very marginal. We're we're high up. Where the farm ranges from about a hundred and fifty meters up to about three hundred meters. We've got full view of the sort of Bantry Bay, so there's a a, a, a large wind coming in. The grounds um very acidic. There's very little. There's bog, 
there's very little actual um, improved soil and there's a lot of rock and a lot of brush. So no, it's not the easiest way. In a way, it, it, it was, it's good like that because if, if I can make this farm viable, it's, it's not that I've got the best land in the best place. You know, if I can show that this farm can become economically viable and environmentally sustainable, then I think it, it could you know, be quite a good model. Was it your int- your medical background? Was it your life experience that drove you in the direction of organics and regenerative farming? It was a bit of both. It was more, I think, life experience. You know, seeing <clears throat> the environmental degradation around the world being exacerbated by climate change, seeing the problems with addiction to fertilizers so poor farmers get addicted to to fertilizers then the fertilizer disappears and their crops completely fail and seeing all the the maladaptive practices that having a large amount of non-organic fertilizer can allow so for example you can you can get away with not protecting your soil you can get away without out mulching because you can throw chemicals at the soil but gradually that soil becomes more denuded and then if you have a break in that fertilizer, which often you do in the developing world because, you you know, you get debts, you get a failed harvest, you can't afford the fertilizer, then you're completely stuck. And so seeing that, I wanted to try and farm in a, in a way that wasn't going to make myself dependent on, on large chemical companies for my, for my living and my life and a, a, a way that actually made the environment nicer to be in, you know, more birds, more, more diversity. When you started your journey, Steve, um, how did you educate yourself around it? Who were your go-to? Who were your peers? Who did you Who did you look to? I talked to whoever I could, really, and I, I sort of read a lot. But I didn't formally study agriculture. I'd done so much, you know, of thirty-five years of of studying and researching health and nutrition. I sort of I wanted to do more practical. So basically, I. It was. It, I used scientific methods. So I tried lots of things, and then I was very open with myself when things failed, and so I tried different things. And so it was a, a lot of hit and miss, a lot of miss, probably more than hit. Um, but I spent the first, you know, fifteen years trying to see what would grow here, what would work here in such a, a harsh environment. You know, I tried the the Dexter cattle, I tried uh, tree nurseries, lots of different types of trees and shrubs, a forest garden. Um, and then I then I found a, a neighbour growing a few blueberries and they were doing well. So I put those in and they did really well. And then that that got me thinking about, well, blueberries are great because they love the bad organic, I'm sorry, bad um, acid soil. soil. Yeah, and they don't need much fertilisation and they, they're pretty disease resistant. And they're also incredibly good for you. So that started me thinking, well, how, hold on, they're really good for you. What, what other berries like that? And then, then I found these aronia berries which have, you know, people talk about superfoods and superfoods are super because they have these these compounds called polyphenols, which they protect your metabolism. They 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 are incredibly good for you. And as from my sort of biochemical and, and medical knowledge, I knew these things were fantastic. And I found out that these aronia bushes had the highest level of polyphenol of any plant or veg. And so I tried a few. I sort of um, got a few from seed initially and they grew really well. And so then I tried a sample and they grew brilliantly. And so then I put a, a thousand bushes up high at like 220 meters, full view of the Atlantic on the worst glacial clay. And these things grew perfectly and started fruiting. 
And so <clears throat> it was a lot of trial and error, but then getting onto a theme with high polyphenol, healthy perennial crops that could grow on bad land. And that's where I've sort of got to now. So the health and wellness industry, I suppose, it's a massive industry. Do you think that there's been a massive switch from chemical, your drugs, taking your tablets over across to try and live a better life? I don't think it's happened sufficiently yet. There may be that switch. But at the moment, I look at healthcare in Ireland and I see it's still very, very curatively based. You know, we wait until someone gets diabetes. To treat it. Wait, and we treat it. Or it waits until someone gets high blood pressure and then you treat it. And the problem is these, these conditions, these chronic conditions that are to do with an underlying metabolic dysfunction called metabolic syndrome. Um, you know, the, the high blood pressure, the poor blood glucose, the bad blood fats, the central obesity. They... They take years in treatment. People will be on treatment for years and years and years. And these drugs are relatively expensive and the health system can't afford it. And and that's acknowledged. The HSE now, you look and they very much talk about prevention, keeping people out of hospital. But the switch to actually, well, how can we eat better food and how can we grow better food as a nation to to complement that preventative strategy? I don't think it has been made sufficiently. So, I, you know, as a nutritionist, I look at the culture around food in Ireland and the idea of a treat. A treat as a nutritionist is something that poisons you. You know, it's something it's high glycemic. It, it, it you know, it's like saying a treat. Oh, yes, look, my child's been really good. Let's give him a bit of cocaine. You know, because they've been really good. Give them a treat from cocaine. <laughs> high glycemic foods that that you eat, so your, your cakes, your biscuits, your sweets, your chocolate, your ice creams, they directly over time poison your metabolism. And that leads to all the problems we see in the second, you know, the, the, the preventative diseases, metabolic syndrome that affects over 30% of Irish people. So there needs to be a cultural change. A treat is a strawberry, is a blueberry, is a is a, a nice nut, is a pear, is an apple. And kids love those foods, but you've got to start them early. Our, our children, I got them onto 85% chocolate. So 85% cocoa chocolate, which is good for you. They won't eat the the cheap, uh, the, the, you know, the milky sweet chocolate now, which is bad for you. You can you can change a person's you know um, desire for sweet foods, but you've got to start early. And so, as a nation, I really think there's a there's a role for for switching to both growing healthier foods and then consuming them. And in the end, something's got to give. That the world can't afford a curative health model you know in america 10 percent of the gdp is taken up by either trying to treat or the consequences of metabolic syndrome 10 percent of their gdp and it's unsustainable i know when we were going to do this um this podcast um kahal was so excited about what your berries could actually do you know you, the the blood pressure the cholesterol yeah. all the positive qualities you know that the berries bring can you kind of elaborate on that a bit yeah no, i could i could elaborate on that until the cows All day. brilliant <laughs> um, so so the polyphenols in in aronia berries they they 
target the heart of metabolism. So the first thing they do, they they keep your blood glucose low. And it spikes in blood glucose that then lead to spikes in a, in a hormone called insulin that leads to insulin resistance where insulin stops working and that leads to diabetes and to metabolic syndrome. And so by keeping your blood glucose low, these berries directly help to prevent metabolic syndrome, diabetes, high blood pressure, poor blood fats. Um, so, and that's, that's, there's randomized controlled human trials on that. The other thing, they, they reduce inflammation. So life is, is a fight against inflammation. You're, you're attacked, ultraviolet attacks you, chemicals in your food attack you, chemicals in the environment attack you, and they create inflammation. And the aronia berries switch off some of the pro-inflammatory signals in the body, and they switch on anti-inflammatory signals. So again, there's, there's, there's really strong randomized controlled trial data showing that effect. Thirdly, Everyone talks about oxidation. You know, you hear about antioxidants. Well, aronia berries and polyphenols in general, they're actually more profound than that. They, they are antioxidants. But what they actually do, which is more important, they switch on your body's antioxidant defenses. So your body actually has these, it's, it's a compound called glutathione mainly. There's a, there's a lot of other ones, but it's synthesized in your body and it's a very, very powerful antioxidant. And they've shown that, that, erroneous supplementation these berries that are growing up on the mountain here they can increase that level of that antioxidant by 50 percent, and that's the main defense so that that is vital in terms of health and longevity um and so so the last the main effect they're, they're antiseptics antibiotics but the main last effects of the microbiome this this um trillions of bugs in your gut that the more researchers look at it, the more it's fundamental to both mental and physical health. But our modern diet with high fats, emulsifiers, high sugars, very concentrated, low fiber, that damages the microbiome. Whereas polyphenols uh, and the fiber in berry and aronia berries, but the aronia berries, the, 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 con the, the constituents in those berries, they directly feed the microbiome. And they help to diversify and make it much healthier. And then that that leads to, to many, many positive health benefits. So, yeah. And, and I say in, in contrast to a lot of sort of alternative medicine, there's there's randomized hum, human trials on on all those effects. And uh, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And, and with the products now, with the aronia berries, we get a massive repurchase. People see the effect. They feel the effect. Um, and so it's looking it's looking positive. Yeah, there, there, there was quite substantial human research done on that. There, uh, there was a lot of trial work done on it as well. I, I from reading some of the work on your website, um, Steve. Just thinking, so you have found uh, berry that can grow on marginal land, and we have lots of marginal land in Ireland. Um, and you can what what happens? Is it is it the berries come out once a year? What happens when the berries come out? You harvest them. H how does person take them? Do they eat them or? What, what do you... Yeah, the, the berries are harvested in August. And, and the great thing about aronia berries, they all ripen at the same time. So blueberries will ripen over a space of two, three months, and you've got to hand pick them. Aronia berries, they all ripen at the same time, and they're ideal. They're a, a, a robust little berry. They're ideal for machine harvesting. So they would be harvested, and then we would send them. We would send them to um, the apple farm in Tipperary, Contrast's apple farm, and he would press them into aronia juice, pure organic aronia juice. And then people can drink the juice. But then we've got research um, with Chuggers himself, actually, in um, Ashtown. Um, 
we're looking at extracting the polyphenols, the active compounds from the press cake left over from the juice. And they, they've, they've got proof of concept there. And we're just waiting on some Enterprise Island funding to, to um, take that to commercial scale. And so we've, we, we've got, we're actually marketing and we're trying lots. It, at the moment, there's such, we've created demand. So we want, no one's growing aronia because no one eats aronia. And so we had to, we had to get demand for aronia from the consumer so that we could then say to farmers, Hey, look, if you grow aronia, we will buy it off you and, and you're going to be able to make a living out of it. And it's very difficult to balance that. So at the moment, the, the, demand for aronia has hugely outstripped my capacity as a single farm to grow it and so we've got a, a link up with an organic farm in poland so we're we're bringing in um they've got products that they they process they make a, a freeze-dried powder they, there's a there's a a, a a juice in a three liter box um and then we're actually capsulating some of it in actual capsules so so basically you can take these Aronia products, however you want, whether you like capsules, whether you like a, a, a little bit of a concentrate in your yogurt or in your smoothie, or whether you like to drink a juice or a, there's going to be a sparkling juice soon. Um, so however you like to get it down, you can get it down. And it, and people like it. It's 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 not as sweet. It's way lower sugar than your normal fruit juice. Um, and it's got a slightly tart and astringent quality. Um, so, so it's, it's, yeah, but some people don't like it, but a lot of people like it. And, and the more you drink it, the more you want to drink it because your body tells you it's good for you. So there is a possibility then for other farmers, organic farmers in Ireland to take this on. Absolutely. That, that's my, I, you know, I, I, after 35 years of working in foods, health and nutrition and food security, you know, I've got a family now. I didn't want to go to wars and, and, and famines with, with young children, um, but I don't want to give up on that sector. So I wanted to find something that local farmers could grow that could both be economically viable for them, you know, make them a profit, make them a living and help the ecology of the area. And the erroneous seem to be that. And so, yes, I'm, we're desperate to, to find new farmers. We, we've got a few farmers um starting up plantations this year each year now I, I i provide plants so i sell plants as well and and each year i'm selling more and more plants and we're starting to you know have farmers growing it at commercial scale so the the vision is that in five to ten years we'll have a whole range of health providing products that are made from locally grown berries here in the in ireland and that that you'll have farmers making a living from these crops, which are, are far more resilient, you know, you get the, they've got deep roots. They're very, very drought resistant. They're um, water logging resistant. They're they're pest resistant. They're, they're great, great crops. So you've got resilient crops making a living from farmers down here and providing healthy products for the Irish consumer. Super, as you have such an exciting market coming up, um, you're developing the market as we go. Um, just uh, so currently. If if you want to to take uh, the juice, is it is it a cup a day or how much do you take a day or where do you get it from? The polyphenols themselves, they haven't got a recommended dietary intake yet. Um, so the the, the av- it, it's really difficult to get data. It, there's a there's some UCC research that says the average intake of polyphenols in Ireland is only 530 milligrams for an adult a day. It's probably a bit higher than that, but we provide um, a, a basic range that gives you between four and 600 milligrams a day in, in a small 150 milli juice 
or a, a capsule or a, a teaspoon of powder. And then we have a, a forte, a strong range, which gives you sort of 800 milligrams. And, and that gets you up to a, there, there were some epidemiological studies done on, on sort of where they took a group of people, they looked at their dietary history, and then they followed them up for five years. And they looked at those with the high polyphenol intake compared to those with the lowest. And they showed that they reduced heart attacks in the high group by 50% having a high polyphenol intake. And so the, our forte range will take you up into the level of intake of that group that had the 50% reduction in heart attacks. Um, so that's what we're aiming for. And then there's going to be a sports range, which will get you even higher. There's, there's re research data on athletes that if you take like 2000 milligrams a day, you hugely in improve your recovery after very strenuous physical exercise. So, so basically you can take it however you want. And the, the dosages, you know, as long as you're getting more than say 400, 500 milligrams a day, you're, you're improving your odds of not getting a heart attack or, or um, being healthy. Deirdre has just twisted her ankle, so I think she needs a bottle of it <laughs> really, God. really quick. <laughs> I was trying to be healthy at the weekend. I went for a walk in the woods and I twisted my ankle. And the, then Cahill was saying, you're going to have to take some Arona berries, Deirdre, yeah. now to bring down the inflammation. I was like, great. <laughs> I will. If I can get my hands on it, I will. <laughs> Where is it available? Yeah, so that, so um, health stores around Ireland now. Um, we're, we're in health stores at the moment, but, but we might... One of my key aims, you know, child nutrition is still in my heart. And when I see children drinking fizzy drinks, which are, you know, your Coca-Cola's, your, your Fanta, maybe I shouldn't mention brands, but, you know, your standard fizzy, sweet. Fizzy pops, yeah. Fizzy pops. I, I, I just like, oh, you're just storing up a world of trouble for you in later life. Whereas... I found that, you know, our, our, our children's friends, they will, they love the aronia juice in fizzy water, which is low sugar, high polyphenol. So it's a, a really healthy fizzy drink. So we're, we're going to be releasing a, a fizzy drink and we're going to be trying to put that in the supermarkets um, so that, that parents who want their child to, to, you know, to be able to have fun and have a nice fizzy drink, but don't want to poison them, have a choice. And so that's, that will be coming in the next couple of months. So hopefully soon you'll have it in supermarkets, but at the moment it's, health health stores around around the country so stores like organico in bantry have been great they they stock it and they've been really supportive throughout and your website is dairy duff bar dairy duff is uh, your website if people want to have a look i'd say yeah the, well there's there's the the farming side of it is um yeah www.dairyduff.ie and then the the product side is it's a aronia island is the company and the brand is fighterberry P-H-Y-T-E-R-B-E-R-R-Y. And so that's on www.aroniaisland.com. Um, so that that's and that has a lot of the scientific data. The the farming data is on the on the farm website, and that's the scientific side. Yeah. Um Deirdre and I predominantly work in the water quality area. So a lot of the work that you're doing when we're kind of kind of doing a bit of research and yeah, you're you're very into regenerative farming, which we really like because I it's looking at the work that you did on um you're mixing your your wood chips with your dung and, and trying to create soil, which uh, you've probably read Gay Brown's book, Dirt to Soil, at some stage. Uh, so I, I love what you're trying to do there. But I also see that you're doing, you have an irrigation lake put in to protect the local river. Can you tell me a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so I, I put ponds in wherever I can because uh, I see the runoff on the mountain taking so much silt and, and taking the soil with it. So I'm trying to slow the runoff and, and have water catchment. So, I've got, I, I would have 15 ponds, I would say, on the on the farm. But the the <laughs> I think the, the, the local farming lads didn't quite know what to make of me. Uh, this uh, guy with an English accent sort of living in the middle of nowhere, starting to small farm these tiny cattle. And then when I um I put in irrigation, they thought I completely lost the plot. I think, um, <laughs> but but to be honest, each year now uh, we're having dry spells. You know, it's particularly in spring. It seems we're, we're having we're having six six weeks with no rain. And you know, I've I've put in God, I would have in over ten thousand berries, uh, uh, blueberries or aronia berries. Now the aronia berries don't need irrigation, but the blue I've got seven thousand blueberries. And if I don't irrigate those, they, they won't die, but they're not going to produce. And so all that effort to get the bushes in, a little bit more to put in drip irrigation. And it means as well that if I use any liquid organic fertilizer, I can target it precisely at the root ball. So I can use tiny quantities of, I, I use a, it's a beetroot based um, organic fertilizer, a liquid one, but I use tiny quantities for 7,000 bushes and I don't have any runoff, any waste. And so it's way more efficient. And then if and then if, if there's a dry spell, I, I'm I'm protected. I'd say your neighbor will thank you anyway on a day like today. I was driving into work and the water is flowing everywhere. And at least your ponds are collecting that. You're not getting mass rushed down the hill. So I think your neighbors are going to be delighted as well. There's not water running into their gardens anyway. Yeah, and, and then in, yeah. in, in the uh, in the winter, when I'm not using it for irrigation, I've got some micro hydro turbines um to generate oh, electricity. Yeah. So so you can use that, you know. It, there's so many resort. Ireland is a, a blessed place in terms of its natural resources. You know, in terms of its steady rainfall, it's got enough sun. It's not. Its climate's very, very moderate. There's so many, so many resources we can use here. Um, yeah. So it's no, I like and and the whole regenerative thing. Uh, uh, what I've been experimenting with recently is um, wool. So so you know. The local lads, the, the the market for 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 your black faced sheep wool, I think it's about eight cents a kilo, and this stuff, mm. yeah, it's crazy. This stuff, even if you're not making it into into to wool for for knitting, which is probably worth about a hundred quid a kilo, I know, but you know, but it's it's a it's a nine one two fertilizer. It's got nine of nitrogen. It's a high nitrogen, slow release organic fertilizer, and it's transforming the blueberries. Um, and so that, and so I'm, I'm buying off local farmers and I, I can pay them, you know, two and a half times what they're, they're getting at the local market. And so they're happy that they're getting a bit more for their wool. It's still a pittance for what it is, but then I'm getting a, a local, a, a organic fertilizer that's made locally and, and no air miles and as incredibly effective. So, you know, things like that, there's, there's these resources, which at the moment are being, being wasted, you know. It's yeah. a, it's interesting you say that on the sheep's wool, um, because I, I some of my clients will be sheep farmers, and every time you go to visit, there's a trailer in the corner shed full of wool because there's there's no point selling it because it costs more than it's actually more expensive to shear the sheep than it is for the amount of price you get for the wool. But there's a a research project going on in Chagas at the moment, a mini project looking at using wool uh, underneath uh, when you're planting new hedgerows. For weed suppression, but also it doubles up as uh, fertilizer, as you say, but also holds back the weeds a little bit as well. So, which particularly, I suppose, if you're in organics, would be useful. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I've been I've been looking at exactly the same on the blueberries, and what I'm seeing is really interesting that that they um 
the wool, you know, the EC, the electrical conductivity of the soil, which is a measure of the nutrients in it, it's gone from 0.05, which is really low, up to 0.5, which is exactly what I want for blueberries, just with the wool, no other fertilizer. And the, the, the one thing you have to watch, though, I found out, uh, the pH in a, in a boggy, a peat-type soil with very little buffering, it can drop the pre- pH markedly. Um, but the other great thing I found about it is that because the the nutrients come out through bacterial action, when it's warm in the summer and the plants need the nutrients, the bacteria are working away. And so they liberate the nutrients. So basically it, it releases its fertilizer. But then when it gets colder in the winter, actually the bacteria stop working. So it stops releasing the fertilizer. So you've got this long-term organic fertilizer that actually releases when you want it and stops when you don't. So it's it's just, uh, you couldn't have designed it better. Yeah. Look, Steve, uh, we could sit here and chat with you all day and you've had a, an interesting life to date. And I expect to see a lot more as you develop this market. And, and I hope that some of our farmers getting bored with you because it sounds to me like um, your rona berries are going to be the equivalent of kind of manuka honey um, or along that lines. Um, but there's a pot of manuka honey in my press at home and I much prefer to eat the local honey because it's on my doorstep and you're growing them down down in Ireland. So that's that's great to hear. Um, thanks a million for your time. Really interesting conversation and looking forward to, to seeing you in the future. Great, lovely. Well, th- thanks for having me. I, I've enjoyed talking to you and I appreciate you, know, you getting in touch. That's it for this episode of the Chagask Environment Edge podcast. Thanks to Dr. Steve Collins of Jerry Duff Farm for joining us on the show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. You can listen Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Cahal Summers. And I'm Georgia Glenn. Join us next time for the Chagas Environment Edge podcast, signpost to farm sustainability.